health and fitness with David Hollywood in association with The Hearing Consultancy, thehearingconsultancy.ie. Hello and very good evening. Another beautiful Friday looking out the window in the studio in Tullamore here and I can see once again the sun is setting. Uh, I hope you're joining us and of course uh, if you're out and about and you can't get to the show of a Friday evening you can get us on midlands103.com the show will be podcasted early uh, next week. We've got a big show coming up we're going to run you through what's coming up very shortly indeed. Okay, we've got loads to look forward to. Uh, We are going to be talking about why whales don't get cancer and how it might actually help us humans. Uh, We will be golfing for health. A Midlands Golf Club is having a -a one-of-a-kind event uh, to check uh, your health if you're playing the game. As they say, it could be a good stroke saver. And we are going to be heading to another club um, on health and fitness here with David Hollywood. And that club uh, is going to be uh, coming up later this evening. All I'd say it is water based for those who might be uh, interested in uh, joining and getting involved in an activity that might uh, help you get out and about. Uh, We always look for participation, that kind of social outlet. And most importantly, that exercise uh, that's going to help us uh, use it rather than lose it, I suppose, is the way to go. First up, though, uh, we are tackling a really complicated issue, I would call it. Uh, Saxenda is what is being mooted as a groundbreaking weight loss drug. Uh, It seems that medication has taken a step forward in the treatment uh, of obesity. And at the moment, there's a number of products that are available, that will be available, um, that are going to make a big difference in this regard. Uh, But it's certainly got um, both its detractors and supporters. So it's an interesting issue that we're going to get straight into right now. I'm very glad to say that uh, Dr. Deirdre Ford, a GP at uh, Kayla Medical in Athlone, uh, joins me this evening. Deirdre, thanks very much for taking the time to talk. My pleasure, David. How are you this evening? I'm very well, thanks. Look, we're talking about a weight loss drug, so there's an awful lot to unravel when we speak about Saxenda or indeed other treatments that might work similarly. So let's start off with the definition, Deirdre, if you could humour me. What is Saxenda and what does it do? Okay, okay. so so Saxenda is like a lot of people would associate with one of those that they hear about this weight loss injection that is like the diabetic weight loss injection. So there are two types, there's Ozempic and there's uh, Saxenda. So Saxenda at the moment by Nova Nordisk is actually licensed for weight loss. What it does is it's a um, GLP-1 agonist. So it's a glucagon-like peptide 1 agonist. Hmm. And the way it works is it actually uh, produces a level of a hormone called um, an incretin. So this hormone will only release insulin when you need it. So it will reduce the amount of glucose then that's been produced by the liver when it's not needed. So basically, it stops the swings of this seesaw of um, starving, being really, really hungry, eating, uh, insulin levels rise again, all of that kind of thing. So it stabilizes everything and it works on, this particular one actually works on the brain to make you feel full when you have had enough to eat. Um, And if you, you know, anyone who's on Saxenda, um, and I suppose the same will go for a Zempic, but um, for a Saxenda especially, 
if you don't lose 5% of your body fat uh, after three months, you know, it's not really working for you because that's what the manufacturers will say that you should lose 5% of your of your body weight okay. uh, within the three months. Okay, so um, I want to understand a few things about it and I think uh, one of the helpful things about our conversation this evening, Deirdre, is that uh, you take this drug specifically, Saxenda. Can you tell me about how and why you were prescribed it? Yes, so... Um, I think COVID with me had a lot to do with it because I'm very small. I'm only five foot two. My weight was always probably about 68 kilos, which is kind of, you know, about, you know, 10 stone. It was fine for me. Hmm. Um, But during the whole COVID period, then what happened was we all got used to, you know, not stepping on the scales, wearing jeggings, all that, that kind of thing. And I remember distinctly the day, it was March 2020, I was cleaning my bathroom and I looked at the scales and I said, well, I don't need that anymore because my clothes fit me perfectly, threw it out. In fact, brought it into the, into the surgery. And then COVID hit and we're all locked down and we're all trying to, to eat. And I'm still working, but I can't get to a facility to eat proper food. So I was eating an awful lot of junk food. And the weight just spiraled out of control and I ended up having a BMI of 31 and I just said this has got to stop because my son is getting married in two weeks time and I said I can't shift the weight how am I going to do this so I spoke to a friend of mine she's a professor um, of endocrinology um, in Galway University and uh, she said why don't you try Saxenda so she gave me the confidence then to okay let's try this she's, she's an endocrinologist she recommends it so I said I'll, I'll try it Okay, and there, there's key markers that uh, need to be checked off if you're viable for Saxenda. Um, you yeah. mentioned uh, your BMI there. Uh, are there any other specifics that um, might help people understand what's going on here? Okay, so according to uh, the medical profession go by guidelines, and these are called um, the NICE guidelines. So it's the National Institute for Healthcare and Excellence. So NICE guidelines have guidelines for everything, including Saxenda. So one of their guidelines is, is if you have a BMI over 30, for Saxanda now, not Ozempic, so BMI over 30, so I qualified for that. Or if you had a BMI between 27 and 30 and you had one of the, or any of the uh, following, you had a tendency to uh, become pre-diabetic, you already were a type 2 diabetic, you had hypertension, you had increased cholesterol, or you suffered from obstructive um, sleep apnea because you were so heavy that you needed to um, actually do something about that. So they are the guidelines around Saxena. Okay. And what was your initial experience of, of uh, taking the drug, uh, th- those um, initial kind of uh, changes to, to how you felt your body changing, your appetite, that type of thing? Yeah. So I, I initially tried it um, for about two days in January and uh, after about three days I just said oh, I can't do this I had a really bad heartburn and uh, I said no no I was awake at night time with this really bad reflux and I said no no can't do that again I spoke to my my friend and she said no it shouldn't be that try it again so I decided to try it again and I started just the end of January beginning of February and I was kind of okay, feeling nauseated for the first week and 
I'd say a lot of my weight started to go then because the thoughts of food used to make me feel sick. But um, I knew I had to eat, so it would be very, very small amounts, maybe of just yogurt or soup or something like that. Something easy just to just to fill me. Mm. Because you've got to increase the doses every single week. And you inject yourself every single day um, in uh, just below the, the, the belly button into the tummy there. And you have to increase every single week. But I found that if I pushed out the increases to maybe every, say, 10 days or two weeks, that the nausea subsided. And as I eventually got to my target dose of, of three milligrams, um, it, it completely stopped. And um, I have to say it's the best thing I ever did. OK, so it's really good that you've had a positive experience uh, having gone yeah. through an initial difficulty. Uh, but people might recognise those uh, side effects, uh, nausea. And I've heard anecdotally um, people can have big trouble with their digestive system initially yeah. and, and, and that that can actually feel uh, quite dramatic as well. So there's, it's, it's not something to be messed around with or taken lightly in yeah. that respect. Exactly, exactly. So you have to be really committed to this. So um, the nausea is can be really, really horrendous, you know, but it'll pass after a couple of days. If you're feeling nauseated, just um, drink a lot of water. You've got to drink plenty of water with all of this. You've got to look at, um, well, because you're going to feel so nauseated, you're not going to be wanting to eat too much anyway, but you're going to get maybe some days of crampy diarrhea, some days where you've got um, constipation. But the most important thing, if you suddenly get really bad epigastric pain, pain there in your tummy, just under your your sternum, that's going into your back, that's Mm. probably pancreatitis, that's a medical emergency, is is one of the most serious side effects. So that is an A&E position. And there are people who can't have a saxenda. So if you have had had a history of, um, say, um, thyroid cancer or if there's a family history of those type of of medullary type cancers, uh, they would be contraindication as well. Okay, and your GP and um, the qualified medical practitioners that you talk to before ever considering this will um, obviously go through all of these issues with you. I wanted to move it on to, um, how would I put this, the state's position in it. I think they were anticipating a five-year budgetary impact of 10 million euro, but will now spend Mm. five to 10 million euro on this drug in this year alone, which suggests the extreme demand for it. Is this a case that the state has... Uh, p- pinching the pennies on, on, on the drug or that uh, there's a huge constituency of people here are, who are looking to take it? I think it's probably a combination of both. Okay. Um, when I started when I started on the sex center, it was so expensive. Um, it was, I think my first month was about €380. Euro. It's gone down now to 250 mm. Um It's not available on the drug payment scheme but it is um, it ca- a case can be made for either Saxenda or Ozempic with your GP if you fit any of the criteria, especially the very overweight people, and this is men and women, obviously, and, and um, um, adolescents over the age of 18. If you fit the criteria of a BMI over 30 with all of those coexisting um, morbidities, that they can make um, a claim through the, it's called the PCRS system, the primary care reimbursement system to the HSE to get all of that reduced to on to the, the drug payment scheme of 80 euro a month. 
So at least there's some sort of incentive coming on board to try and um, alleviate the cost for women or men or for whoever needs this because this is the way to go. Obesity is an epidemic in this country. Yeah, I think it's actually important that whilst we talk about um, a weight loss drug, uh, we talk about the reasons for losing weight and I understand yeah. it can actually be a, an anxiety provoking conversation for people who have been unfairly treated in their lives because of the concept and question of weight. Uh, but it has consequences to carry too much weight. It has absolutely consequences. As I, I have on my on my website, my Saxenda journey, and I said it's like for the last couple of years, it's like carrying an 18 month old baby on my back that's how bad it is and it slows you down it has cardiovascular risks if you're obese type 2 diabetes um, um, risk of heart attacks risks of strokes and with women especially um, because my clinic is menopause is uh, the risk of breast cancer for any woman who has a BMI over 30 that's her risk of breast cancer nothing else okay. so there's huge you know there's, there's, there's a huge um, importance here to tackle this uh, epidemic of obesity in this country. I wanted to ask finally then, have you any concerns that people are going to try to use this um, to cut uh, as a shortcut to a healthy weight? And what are the potential consequences knock on for that? Because we, a lot of us understand that to, to have a healthy weight, we must um, eat right and exercise correctly and I pre- appreciate mm-hmm. that the Saxenda, for instance, as a um, it, its properties uh, affects how you think about food and, and, and that type of thing uh, but it mm-hmm. seems like there's a, uh, a disproportionately large amount of people potentially looking for it is there a danger that we end up going totally uh, off the other end here and overuse it or over exploit it okay um, because it has to be prescribed by a GP mm. or weight management team they are not going to prescribe Saxenda for somebody who just wants to lose a few pounds. This is a lifestyle change. This is a lifestyle um, medication. You you need to stay on this for life. If you stop it, you're going to put the weight back on again. So um, I've had um, maybe two or three women come to me with a BMI maybe of, you know, 26, and they'll say, 26 is a normal BMI. You know, if you're 27, you're heading towards overweight. Oh, I want to lose a few pounds. And I've refused. And I said, no, this is this is not for you. Um, this is a medication that has to be, uh, you know, monitored. So, uh, no, I, I don't believe that that's going to happen. And just actually on the BMI thing, again, it's anecdotal from my perspective, but I take an interest in it. I've heard plenty of debate around BMI. Is it as... Um, rigorously trusted by doctors as it always was or has it been uh, found to have moments uh, of inaccuracy or moments that aren't representative? I would absolutely agree with that. There are moments of inaccuracy. So when I'm looking at women who are trying to lose weight, I said, forget about your BMI. Look at your clothes. Okay, yeah. Are your clothes fitting you? That's what you need. That's what it is. Okay, Deirdre, I think this has been an enlightening discussion. I really appreciate you taking uh, the time this evening. Uh, that is Deirdre for GP at Kayla Medical Athlone. Thanks again. My pleasure. Next, we are going to ask and seek to answer the question, why don't Wales get cancer? 
Health and Fitness with David Hollywood with the Hearing Consultancy. Carrying out free hearing tests in Clara, Tullamore, Kinnegad and in our latest clinic at Mullingar Dental Clinic, Martins Lane, Mullingar. Thehearingconsultancy.ie Now it's a question and a challenge that uh, has preoccupied and will preoccupy the human race for many years to come and of course for many years uh, in the past and that's uh, the question of the big C cancer and uh, how do we treat it and lots of research and work is being uh, done looking at uh, what we might learn from the animal world as it was and we know uh, that uh, mammals of different shapes and sizes they have varying cancer rates uh, among themselves Uh, joining me to maybe uh, unravel some of the mysteries of why cancer affects animals at different rates research scientist at the Welcome Sanger Institute Alex Kagan joins me Alex thanks for taking the time as I said in our introduction can we understand more about treating uh, cancer in human uh, by analysing uh, mammals and, and how the, their experiences with differing cancer rates occur? Uh, well, but yeah, thanks for having me. That's certainly what we hope at the Wellcome Sanger Institute. So as you mentioned, uh, cancer is something that affects all multicellular organisms. It's not unique to humans. And we think that by taking a broader perspective and looking at cancer in other species, we might be able to learn some new things that could really help us in detecting, treating, and preventing cancer in humans. And so kind of one of the main observations that we've seen from looking across species that's been known for a while is that cancer rates vary across species, uh, and they vary in surprising ways. So what we would expect from everything we know about cancer in humans is that animals that are larger, with more cells, uh, that have longer lifespans than our own, should have higher rates of cancer because cancer is something that can emerge through mutation in our cells. And the more cells you have and the longer you're around, the higher the risk that one of those cells may develop into a cancer. Mm. But in fact, when we look across the animal kingdom, we don't see higher rates of cancer in larger, longer-lived species. So there are enormous whales that have trillions or quadrillions more cells than us and can live for up to 200 years, but they seem to have the same rates of cancer that we do. And so what that suggests is that some of these larger species must have evolved superior mechanisms for preventing or resisting cancer to our own. And currently, we have no idea what those mechanisms might be. And so we're very interested in studying these species to try and understand, you know, how have they kind of solved the problem of cancer? Can we learn how they do it? And could we one day apply that to our own species? That sounds, Alex, tremendously promising uh, that there is a species on this planet that we inhabit uh, that in some way, if we can find a way of analysing it correctly, is it has or potentially is displaying the key to surviving uh, cancer or maybe addressing it in terms of how it gets produced in our cells. Exactly. And what's even more encouraging is that these aren't just any species, they're actually mammals. So they have very mm. similar underlying biology to our own. Um, and so at the Wellcome Trust, at the Sanger Institute, what we've been trying to do is look at the underlying genetics of these species because we know that cancer is at its heart a genetic disease. It's caused by mutations in our DNA. So to look at this, we work with a variety of collaborators around the UK, uh, including partners at London Zoo. And we also work with the Cetacean Stranding Investigation Program, who are this group that every time a whale or a dolphin washes up on the UK shoreline, they'll go around and, and do an autopsy to try and learn more about the animal, why it washed up, what was the cause of death. And so this gives us access to really invaluable tissue specimens from animals that died of natural causes. Um, and by taking these tissue specimens from different mammals with different lifespans, we looked at 16 different species, and we looked at the rate at which they were accumulating damage in their DNA. And what we found that really surprised us and that was really unexpected was that there was an enormous variation in the rate at which these different animal species were accumulating DNA damage. So a mouse that lived two or three years 
is getting about 800 mutations in DNA in each cell every year, whereas with humans we're only getting about 50 mutations. And if we look at the kind of if we look at this difference in mutation rate and the lifespan of the species, we see that all these mammal species, despite having very different lifespans, are ending their life with a very similar number of mutations in their DNA. And so what this suggests is that larger, longer-lived species have indeed evolved these superior ways of protecting their DNA as they get older. And so we're very excited now in trying to look into this further and understand, well, we see there's this difference in mutation rates between species, but how is it that these larger, longer-lived species are able to better protect their DNA. And so that's kind of our ongoing mission now is to understand what are the ways that these species can do this. And if we can figure that out, could, could that hold a, a kind of a secret or a new method for reducing the rate of cancer? Mm. It's, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating and it's, it's, it, it just feels like it's um, such important work in the sense that uh, it, is, it is an issue that has touched us all and that I think we're all affected by conceptually. So um, you say that, you know, for instance, um, you, you were collaborating uh, with many people across the United Kingdom. Um, is it one of those issues and things where you find researchers and um, people that you have to collaborate with uh, or want to collaborate with, there's that extra momentum because it, it, it might be something that furthers uh, research on treating cancer? I think so. I think it's definitely been a, a really good collaborative effort on this because, as you said, it, it touches all of us. It's a universal problem that's you know been with humans since the dawn of time, uh, and there's this real hope that you know some of the answers might be out there by looking at the diversity of the animal kingdom and really learning from these some of these really magnificent species with you know the, the large whales, elephants that share the planet with us and may hold some of the answers to helping us to better prevent and treat cancer. And Considering the work that has been done and the knowledge that's been gained, uh, from your perspective, what are the important next steps in terms of uh, this particular path of research? Yeah, so I mean, the current study that we did, we only really looked at 16 species of mammals. So we're really just scratching the surface of the diversity in the animal kingdom. Mm. So now we're seeking to look at species with even greater lifespans, species such as the Greenland shark, which you know inhabit the waters around the UK and can live for, we think, up to 500 years without developing cancer. So we're really excited to look at some of these species with extraordinary lifespans, look at their DNA, and try and understand how are they able to achieve these kind of extraordinarily long and healthy lives. And there's just so much natural diversity out there that we're only beginning to study from a genetic perspective because we haven't had the tools that enable us to study them until now. So we're really excited to work with an international group to dig into what's going on with these long-lived species and try and learn from them. I'm interested to know in terms of the time frame, um, if, uh, going back, when did we have the tools available uh, to analyse this to the degree that is necessary and um, what kind of advances have been made that have, have brought us to this point? Yeah, that's, well, that's a great question. So we, we've been able to sequence DNA for quite a long time, it's going back a few decades now. But the kind of mutations that we're looking at are very difficult to detect because we're interested in the mutations that are present in single individual cells within the body. And the methods that we've had for, for sequencing genomes have, have had quite a high error rate. So you could sequence a genome, but you'd have a lot of errors, you know, a lot of, uh, like having a lot of typos in a document. Mm. And we really needed to have very accurate sequencing so that we could look at mutations within single cells. And it's only been in the last couple of years that we've had that increase in accuracy uh, and the ability to look at these mutations that accumulate within our body as we age. So it's really opened up a whole new avenue of research that many groups around the world are now starting to explore. And it's, it's, we're very hopeful that this new ability to study 
these mutations as we age will help us to better understand cancer and potentially other age-related diseases and, and even ageing itself. And then does that lead us on to manipulating our own DNA ultimately to protect us from these issues? Well, that's a great question. I think at the moment it's hard to say where this research will lead because, you know, we're still trying to understand what are these mechanisms that control cancer and aging. Mm. Uh, But, of course, down the road, potentially one solution could be trying to do something like manipulating the DNA. Or it could be that what we learn from other animals, we can apply in other ways, you know, through through therapies or drugs. It's really unclear at this stage. um, But I think just the key now is to figure out what are those mechanisms that allow these animals to achieve these extraordinary long, healthy lives. And then the next step after that is to think, how could we apply that knowledge to benefit ourselves? Well, so far, so very interesting. Uh, Research scientist at the Wellcome Sanger Institute doing fantastic uh, work. Alex Kagan, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Still to come on health and fitness. We learn about aqua aerobics and we're golfing for health. Health and fitness on a Friday evening with David Hollywood. Abbey Leaks Golf Club is the first in Ireland to provide a basic health screening for blood pressure, heart rate, arrhythmia, atrial uh, fibrillation at their uh, Golf for Health event. It's coming up next weekend. Uh, All of these conditions, of course, are treatable when they're caught early. And that's very much uh, the idea behind this event. Uh, Club members Tom Connolly and Dr. John Madden are joining me to have a chat about the event. And Tom, uh, I'll come to you first. How did all of this come about? Yes, Tom Fennelly. Um, um, well, in the early days of COVID, I wasn't feeling the best, getting tired on the last three fairways when playing golf, mm. shortness of breath and the classic symptoms of atrial fibrillation. So at that time, of course, getting doctor's appointments were at a premium. So I bought myself an ECG machine and I hooked up my electrodes and <laughs> um, the results came out more like a ship's depth sounder than an ECG reading. Oh my gosh. And um, so I went straight to A&E and I was admitted and spent two days in hospital. Got a reboot to restart my heart and get me ongoing treatment. And the team that dealt with me told me that I was very lucky that I had done what I'd done. Now, let me say at this point, um, if anyone has symptoms, go see your doctor. Don't do what I did. It's yeah. not to recommend. It was just the time that, that was in it with COVID. Um, so that was one reason. And the second reason then I got to thinking about it and uh, every golf club has a defibrillator, you know, nowadays. But the right man has to be in the right place all the time for that to work. And, you know, it's better if the atrial fibrillation is detected before you need a defibrillator. Sure. So Abbey Leaks Golf Club... Um, that we're providing this opportunity, you know, to give something back and try and raise funds at the same time. So that's that's basically where we're at. That's where it came from. And you'll, uh, I do apologise for um, mangling your name at the start, Tom Fennelly. My apologies for that, Tom. No, no problem. Um, I'm going to bring Dr. John Madden in. Uh, John, I'll call you John from here if that's okay. Um, of course. If we screened recreational golfers as a matter of course, let's say once a month, what would that actually lead to, do you think? Well, um, uh, Tom's story absolutely makes the case, doesn't it? And um, uh, But Tom had symptoms. And, of course, the problem with a lot of these conditions, and we're screening for three particular things in Abilix on our golf weekend, 
But most people who have atrial fibrillation if, uh, have no symptoms. They may have some palpitation or in Tom's situation where they feel breathless with exercise, but a lot of people might not have any symptoms whatsoever. And uh, when you look at populations of people, the incidence of atrial fibrillation starts around 2% and goes up as high as 10% mm. when we get to older age groups. So it's very high. And if we have atrial fibrillation, the risk of stroke increases by a factor of five. Um, so it's a very significant condition, and it's very easy to treat. It's also very easy to diagnose so that we simply just take a pulse rate and see if the pulse rate is regular or if it's disorganized and irregular. And if, it's a, if, if we find atrial fibrillation uh, by simple pulse check, well, then we can do something about it. And um, so the other two things we're going to measure, we're just going to measure people's blood pressure. And similarly, blood pressure is one of these things that's extraordinarily common. I mean, in Ibidix, if you take it, the population over the age of 45, at least 50% of people have high blood pressure. It's a national issue, isn't it, blood pressure? Enormous. And, um, and it's much under-treated. That's the interesting thing. So it's, it's thought that maybe four in every five men and two in every three women who have blood pressure are actually not being treated. And the statistics are that about 10,000 people a year or more die with heart-related or stroke-related uh, problems. And so if we treat blood pressure properly, the estimate is that we can reduce the number of deaths from these conditions to by 50%. So we're going to save 5,000 lives. So if, so if we simply measure blood pressure at the start of a golf event and tell somebody, you know what, your blood pressure is up a little bit, and if we get that treated, we're reducing the risk of heart attack or stroke by half. So that's an extraordinary gain. And the other condition we're measuring is uh, sugar, diabetes. I mean, the, as you know, the, the incidence of diabetes has gone through the roof. So 10% of people are now over the age of 50 are diabetic. And 16% of people over the age of 80 are diabetic. So extraordinary numbers. Mm. So that, again, the kind of the complication rate of diabetes is very high, tends not to have any great warning. So people who are very well for long periods of time who just are having a little bit of sugar, as they might see it, um, suddenly get a catastrophic complication. So, so really what we're planning to do is just at the start of the tournament is just to measure people's blood pressure, measure their sugar, and do their pulse rate. takes five minutes and, and could save somebody's life. It's very simple. It is very simple, and it's those simple things, uh, Tom, I'm going to come back to you, that makes such a difference. What about from your perspective? You told us your story and I don't know about you, but uh, say on a personal basis, I like to be sure, I like to, how do I put it? I like to tell myself I'm perfectly healthy until the evidence is irrefutable. But when you're told the opposite, that, that it isn't or wasn't the case, it's a real perspective changer, I can imagine. It must have changed your outlook pretty quickly. Well, um, there, there's, another, there's another aspect to it. Um, those who take the test, um, if they're found to have atrial fibrillation, we'd say, it, it can be hereditary, so they're not just saving their own life, they're saving someone else in their families. Um, David, the, the, the point, the, the success of this uh, actually will depend on the support we get for it from other golf clubs. And what I want to emphasise is that, uh, like I was down in Mabalik's golf course today playing, mm. and it's absolutely looking splendid. And what I want to do is I want to invite every golfer from Clonbar to Son and everywhere in between to come out and join us and support this event. Like there's there's two thousand euro in prizes and they include top range finders, golf clothing, there's some brilliant hotel packages 
and um, so forth. And like, if we can get this off the ground long term, I'm not just talking about this year. I'm yeah. talking about for the next couple of years. There's there's two hundred thousand golfers registered with Golf Ireland. If every golf club were to do, and Dr. John Madden has clearly explained there the benefits of it and how many lives can be saved, it would make a huge impact on saving lives. I don't doubt it. Um, Tom, a couple of questions to finish up our conversation. The first of which is, uh, you are appealing to golf courses, uh, any member of a golf course, anyone who plays golf that's listening this evening. Is it a case that they could rock up to Abbey Leaks Golf Course next weekend uh, and get no. involved? Now they can just go on to abbeyleaksgolfclub.ie, okay. or if they, if the, some people are kind of hesitant about websites and stuff, the Abbeyleaks uh, Facebook page, Abbeyleaks Golf Club Facebook page, they can phone the golf club um, anytime, any morning during the week, um, and there's booking online. The visitors, if they go to abbeyleaksgolfclub.ie and scroll down to the visitors tab. Um, they can book online there and um, if they w- want to wait to pay them until they arrive they can um, ring the golf club and the lovely Linda the secretary will answer them and deal with them right. but we need support and we need we need this to, to be a success Well it's a commendable initiative and um I think hopefully our conversation this evening and the work that you're doing in the background to promote it uh, will get it plenty more traction between now and uh, next weekend. Tom, we must be getting to the time of year where a lot of people are getting back out there and possibly reconnecting with their swing and the rest of it. You've just said you're out there yourself today. What kind of shape is your game in? Uh, I've done pretty well today. I ended up um, 38 points or something, just two over. Well, I think uh, any of us listening, well, many of us listening, including myself, would take that. And you, John, what are your confidence levels for next weekend in terms of the playing side? Oh, zero. <laughs> zero, zero. <laughs> I, I, I've been uh, I've been hopelessly bad at kind of getting back in this year. I haven't even played a game yet this year, so that uh, it's time for me to get back out. But well, I think uh, Tom's message is super important, and um, and you know, I mean, really, the take home is that uh, although we're checking for three separate conditions, which are easy to check for, mm. but you know, all exercises is super beneficial and every little helps and uh, the statistics are phenomenally good around doing exercise and I think probably as GPs if we could persuade people as the first item of a prescription to actually exercise a little bit more it would make an enormous difference there's tremendous benefits from physical point of view psychological prolonging life even reduces cognitive decline reduces cancer rates so ordinary simple walking ordinary exercise makes a phenomenal difference Look, that's the message that we're all about here on Health and Fitness. Um, that's Golf for Health at Abbey Leaks Golf Course. Contact the club through their website or Facebook or phone them. Um, and as you've been hearing there, there's over two grand in prizes. And of course, you may well save more than a par on the day. Uh, guys, I apologise for the pun and I thank you both for your time. Thank you very much, David. Cheers, guys. Uh, that is, uh, rather, that was Dr. John Madden and Tom Fennelly uh, from Abbey Leaks Golf Club. And uh, they're having, that is, uh, a fantastic event uh, next weekend. Contact the club if you're interested in getting involved. Uh, I am bullying for a game of pitch and put. I'd say my um, standards can only reach to those uh, lofty heights at the moment. Uh, but uh, 
there's nothing better, is there? Particularly in this country, we've got such great fresh air, scenery, and so many great golf clubs and pitch and putt clubs. Uh, walking around at your leisure at the weekend like that, it's both, it's got that health payoff, but it's also uh, really enjoyable. You're listening to Health and Fitness on Midlands 103 this Friday evening. Next, you're going to learn about aqua aerobics in the Midlands. Health and Fitness with David Hollywood in association with the Hearing Consultancy. Carrying out free hearing tests in Clara, Tillamore, Kinnegad and in our latest clinic at Mullingar Dental Clinic, Martins Lane, Mullingar, thehearingconsultancy.ie. Now let's hear about a supportive place where everybody's ability is catered for. It's something that could keep you fit and strong. Colm Salmon is Deputy Manager at Lone Regional uh, Sports Centre and is an aqua aerobics instructor. He's been speaking to our reporter Chloe Farrell and he begins by describing himself as a bit of a water baby. I would have always, from a young age, been involved with kind of water activities. I was a swimmer when I was younger. I did a lot of water safety when I was younger as well in the old Ballinasloe swimming pool. I moved then to be a lifeguard and I kind of was always leaning towards fitness and into the fitness area. Out of that, I went to college in Sligo and eventually came back to Athlone. One of the first kind of fitness classes I taught here was actually aqua aerobics. What would be your favourite thing about teaching aqua aerobics? My favourite thing about teaching acrobatics is more so the people you have in front of you, um, how you can interact with them, more or less how you can see what you do benefits the person in the water. You can have so many different types of people in the same class and you have to deliver that class in a different way for each person that's in front of you. And I always find that it's very challenging when you have different abilities and different ages in front of you that you have to be able to think, well, if that person can do this exercise, is that other person going to be able to do it? And how you can deliver it in a way that allows you to make sure that everyone in the class gets an experience out of the class instead of feeling like they're not able or they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to get their workout. That kind of thing is what kind of I really do enjoy about acrobics. What is aqua aerobics? The easiest explanation I can give of aqua aerobics, aqua aerobics is exercises in water. Pretty much is the simplest explanation of it. The reason it's kind of that simple is because that is exactly what we're doing. It has the aqua aerobics title on it. It was always aqua aerobics. It originally was the kind of old style aerobics you used to do in kind of back in the 80s was what was transferred to the water but now it's kind of stepped on from that so there is kind of different bits of training so you might have training that's for your heart and your lungs training that's for your muscles you know kind of it's kind of stepped on a little bit from what it originally was. So how does the class typically work you know what do you do then that would tailor the needs of each person in the class? To give you an example of one of, say, the classes we run here, so our acrobatics class, we would normally start off with a warm-up, and the warm-up allows you to kind of scan and see what type of people you have in your class. You'll have people of all abilities, so you can have a quick look across your class, see who's fit, who mightn't be so fit, who might be young, who might be old, who might have disabilities, pregnancy, anything like that. It allows you to scan your class, see who's in your class, and then also announce it at the start of the class what you're going to do in your kind of aerobics class. Normally, after the warm-up and kind of set-up, you will then move into your phases 
of your class. Now, every instructor will have different kind of structures to their class, but mostly we would end up doing a kind of a cardio phase, which would be a lot of exercise movements in the water that are designed to get your heart beating, get your lungs kind of pulling in a little bit more air. And then what we will do is most likely use what we have here is aqua dumbbells they are actually afloat in the shape of a dumbbell that we will use in the water to add resistance to the muscles so that you're doing strength work as well in the class then we kind of progress on through and do a cool down at the end are there different types of aqua aerobics classes or is each class kind of filled with different types of people we run four aquaerobics classes here. We have four different instructors. Each would follow more or less the same type of format of a strength kind of workout, a cardio kind of workout, and kind of make sure that there's balance to the class, that it's not you're going into a pool and you're going to run on the spot for 20 minutes, that there is going to be different exercises throughout the class. So each instructor will follow that format within each class. So we would have different people of different abilities. So for one, for an example, we would have a class here where we have a person who is disabled, an amputee. There would be a person who also um, is deaf in our class. And the way of being able to cater to those people so that they're involved in that fitness class. So we have people from all kind of ranges, uh, people who would feel that they're very unfit, people who feel that they're fit. We'd have people, uh, women who are, would be pregnant. So we've a whole kind of, we've a large group of people that would come into us for aqua aerobics as well. What benefits does aqua aerobics have for each type of person that may start it? Anyone that would start aquaerobics, straight off the benefits you will get normally from it, you will get, obviously you're doing an exercise class, you're going to get fit from doing that. You're going to get, you're going to improve your level of fitness. So if you've done nothing prior to this and you start doing aquaerobics, you will start to see that you might be breathing a bit better. You mightn't be struggling as you you breathe. You might find that you feel stronger when you lift things. One of the great kind of benefits of aquaerobics and water-based exercises that we are kind of one of the only classes that say we don't have any impact in our class because you're in a weightless environment. So anyone that would be rehabbing or anyone that would have problem with their joints, it also helps with that. Anyone with arthritis, it also helps with that. The pressure of the water on the joints also helps with release, kind of releasing tension. It kind of helps with all that. Basically, you improve your fitness. You are in a kind of impact, injury-free environment. And also with that, you're going to improve your um, cardiovascular fitness. So your heart and lungs are going to get improved from the exercises you will be doing in the class. So is there a type of person that would benefit from aqua aerobics more or is it always kind of tailored to anybody? Um, that's kind of the great thing about aqua aerobics, especially in the water. It's, it's tailored for everyone. I might be doing the same exercise as another person could be doing it, but I mightn't be going as fast as they're going. So, you know, I'm still doing the same exercises, but... Uh, they're going faster than me. They might be getting more out of it than I do. But at the same time, my fitness level mightn't be up to their fitness level. So it's great that everyone can go in. And even though you will be doing the same exercise, depending on the amount of force you put through the water, 
you will find you'll get more resistance out of the water. Um, the faster you go, obviously, the more your heart rate's going to go up, you know, the more calories you're going to burn. So it, it, that's the great thing about it, is even though you can do a running-on-the-spot move in the water, everyone's going to be slightly different. Everyone has slightly different abilities, different fitness levels. And that's kind of the great thing about aquaerobics is that you don't feel obliged to have to go any harder than you're comfortable with. You can go at your level, you can increase your fitness, and as your fitness increases, then you start to see progressions with people in the water. You start to see them do a little bit more, uh, maybe go a little bit faster when they're doing certain exercises, you know, that kind of thing. Do you think that aqua aerobics is a better style of exercise than for some people rather than another? I would. So there's certain restrictions with, say, doing some training up in the gym. People mightn't be comfortable with that environment going up to a gym. Uh, I find that predominantly a lot of our aquaerobics classes are more filled with women who feel more comfortable going into the water and training in the water. I also find that you will have people who have, might have either a shoulder injury or a back injury that's, that has always been there, or even injuries with their hips, and they find that the water is more comfortable for them, especially people that would suffer from their hips. They find as soon as they go into the water, the pain eases because obviously they're not taking all their weight into their hips or they're not you know, they're in a weightless environment, so everything's a little bit easier to move within the water. That and the water being a little bit warmer helps as well. So you'll find that people sometimes prefer to go into the aquaerobics, into that kind of weightless environment where there's no impact, there's no kind of pressure on their body, there's no heavy weights that they need to lift or anything like that. So you'll find that sometimes, depending on the person or their requirements, it is a better environment to train in for them. Does it matter whether somebody can swim or not? No, it doesn't. It does not. Majority of our aquaerobics is done in water that's about one meter deep, which is about to your chest, about to your chest. You can move deeper in the water, but we don't. We close off the deep end for our aqua classes, so we don't have that open. So anyone that has a fear of swimming or anyone that, sorry, has a fear of water, not fear of swimming, they would normally tell you at the start of the class. They will kind of make it known that they do not want to be out in the middle of the water. So they're right beside the wall and they can stay there for as long as they're comfortable. There's so much in that. Uh, that's aqua aerobics. Uh, thanks to Chloe Farrell, our reporter, and Colm Salmon from Athlone Regional Sports Centre. Get in touch with them if you liked the sound of that. I think that in particular could it be a good venture for many people. A big thanks to everyone who contributed to Health and Fitness on Midlands 103 this evening. We're going to be back next week. Uh, we're off to the newsroom shortly. I'm telling you right now, Joe Cooney is stood in the hallway playing the guitar. He's obviously getting in the mood for Country Roads, which is next after the news. Midlands 103.